Our sermon passage today is from Psalm 71. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. O God, our Father, you are great, you are mighty, and you are worthy to be praised. You've done great and mighty works in our lives. You've given us your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins, and we thank you for that. I pray that you would be high and lifted up today and that over the next hour. I pray that if there's anything unhelpful that I plan to say, that you would take that from my mind. I pray that I would only say things that are true and helpful for the edification of your saints and for the glory of your name. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome to Redeemer. My name is Zane Sills. I have the privilege of serving as an elder here. I apologize you are not getting me at my best this morning. I have not been feeling well this week. Uh, I don't have anything contagious, just really, really bad allergies um, from all this crazy weather we've been having. Um, but I'm running on about two and a half hours of sleep last night uh, because of my allergy symptoms. So... Um, Here's the thing, we serve a great and mighty and powerful God who is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over allergies, he's sovereign over uh, sleep schedules, 
And uh, despite my, what I'm, what I'm clinging on to today is that despite my utter uselessness this morning, and I don't think I'm understating that, is that the Spirit of God will be at work through the preaching of His inspired Word to glorify the name of the Father and hopefully to bring some edification to you, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so today we're going to be meditating on the truths of Psalm 71. It's my hope that we will be able to approach this psalm with fresh eyes and ears to hear what the Lord has for us. As we study today, please pay attention to the emotional through line of the psalm uh, to ensure that as we read it, as we study it, uh, the intended emotional response is produced in us. Remember that psalms are their hymns, their songs, their poems, their uh, artistic in nature. Now, they're divinely inspired art, um, but they are songs, and as such, they are designed to produce some sort of emotional response in us. Um, and there's a psalm, I think, for every season in life, whether it's uh, good times, bad times, in-between times, wherever you're at, there's a psalm to meet you in that place. And I will go so far as to say that if you are reading a psalm and you are not provoked to some sort of emotional response towards God, that you're not reading the psalm the right way. So um, I don't want to bury the lead. Um, today, the emotional through line of this psalm is one where the author starts at a place of desperation because of all the hardship and oppression and opposition around him that he's experiencing, and he moves to a place of worship. And so that's the emotional through line of this psalm, and that's the response that should be produced inside of us. So today it is my sincere hope that through the Spirit that resides in each one of us that believe in Jesus, that He would bring us from whatever place of hardship we might be in or wherever we're at in life and lead us to a place of worship and praise. So that's where I hope we're going to get here in the next half hour or so. So with that, let's see what this psalm has to say to us. Uh, the first thing we see in point one is, uh, the first thing the psalmist talks about is when hardships come, take refuge in God. When hardships come, take refuge in God. So I, I want to keep this first point as brief as I can. I don't want to re-preach Ben's sermon from last week. If you were here, Ben preached an excellent message on Psalm 46 um, about God being a God of refuge. Uh, in many ways, I feel like Psalm 71 is an excellent complement to and continuation of some of the things we talked about in Psalm 46 last week. So I hope this uh, will feel like a kind of logical, logical, natural progression of some of the things we talked about last week of God being a God of refuge. The first thing that we see when reading this is that the psalmist is in the midst of troubles. And in the midst of those troubles, his first reaction is to take refuge in God. Look at the first three verses. He says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Be to me a rock of refuge. And this theme repeats over and over and over in the verses that you just heard Brandy read for us. Um, and remember, uh, ancient biblical writers didn't have typewriters. They didn't have computers. So they didn't have access to fancy things like bold face type or underlining or italicization if I pronounce that word correctly, if they wanted to make a point, they didn't have those tools at their disposal, so oftentimes they would repeat themselves. So anytime you see a word, a phrase, or a theme repeated over and over in this section of Scripture, it's the author putting a big red blinking light on it and saying, hey, pay attention to this. This is important. This is a main point. 
So we know that as this theme of taking refuge in God and hardship is repeated over and over, we know it's important for the psalmist. And if this is the inspired word of God and we believe that it is, it's important for us too. So like the psalmist, we are human beings who experience hardship. Maybe not in the exact same way that the psalmist experienced hardship, um, but we do experience hardships in our lives. And we don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. Um, it's very possibly David wrote it. Um, if, uh, if it was David, the context clues would probably suggest that it might have been later in his life, perhaps when he was on the run from Absalom after his betrayal. Even if it wasn't David, the author certainly took inspiration from the Davidic Psalms, uh, talking about being oppressed in hardships and, and going to God in refuge. There's a lot of similar phrases and themes that you see there. So uh, whether or not it's written by David, certainly influenced um, by him. But you see the hardships that he's experiencing. They're described here in verse 4. He says, Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. Verses 10 and 11, he says, For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. So you see what he's experiencing is there is some group of people who are after him, uh, oppressing him, chasing him, and it seems that they intend to bring violence upon him. So um, I'm willing to guess that everybody in this room, there's probably not many of us that came to church, that we've got a, a group of people in Nashville that are chasing us around, intending to do violence on us. Um, if that's an issue you have, maybe we need to talk about it after church. Um, but even if we don't share the exact same hardships that the author here has, we do have hardships. We live in a broken, fallen, sinful world, and we experience these tough times, whether it's things like death, cancer, sickness, being laid off of your job, uh, betrayal of loved ones, friends, or family. We experience these things, and the question that we have to ask ourselves is, when life happens, when these hardships come our way, what are we going to do? Let me repeat that again. When these things come our way, when these hardships happen, what are we going to do? And the first thing this passage would tell us is that we need to take refuge in God. So if we need to take refuge in God, I think that begs a couple of questions. Um, one, what are the things that we tend to seek refuge in that aren't God? And then two, how do we seek refuge in God instead of those things that we're prone to run to? So let me break these apart and address these one at a time. What are the other things that we tend to seek refuge in other than God? It's a hard question to answer because for everybody in this room, I think the answer is a little bit different. We all have these things that, we would, uh, that we're prone to run to. So let's engage in a thought exercise for just one brief moment. Um, we don't have time to stop the sermon and ask each individual person what things you take refuge in, so we'll do this collectively. You don't need to answer these questions out loud, just answer them in your mind. Um, if you go into work tomorrow and you get called into your boss's office and you get let go, unexpectedly, doesn't matter why you're let go for the purposes of this exercise, you're let go. You leave your boss's office, what's the first thing you do? What's your reaction to that? What's the first thing you do? Maybe that one doesn't apply to you. How about this one? Next week, you start getting sick. In a couple of weeks, you go to a doctor, get some tests run. The results come back. You talk to the doctor, and you find out you've got a very, very bad disease. Uh, not a good diagnosis. You leave that meeting. What's the first thing you do? What's the first thing you do? One more. 
somebody close to you, somebody you consider a friend is spreading rumors about you, and those untruths end up breaking a relationship that you have with somebody else close because they believe them, and now you have this broken relationship due to something you had no control over, what's the first thing you do in response to that? I think, depending on how you answer those questions, indicates a lot about where you tend, personally tend to take refuge. For some of us, the first reaction might be immediately to try and solve the problem. Oh, well, I just got let go, so I'm going to dust off the resume, I'm going to work the contacts, I'm going to try and find a different job. Or maybe if it's a bad diagnosis of some sort of disease, you're immediately going doing research for all the doctors, the best doctors, and what's in network, and all of that. If, if that's your kind of reaction, then I would suggest... If that's the first thing you do, I would suggest that maybe you tend to take refuge in self. Other people, maybe you would immediately go to a close confidant, a spouse, a friend, some other family member, and you would immediately unload everything on them. Hey, here's what happened. I would suggest that if you're in that category, you probably tend to take refuge in other people, and particularly the person you're thinking of. For some people in this room, maybe the immediate response would just be shut down and watch a lot of TV, or eat, or sleep a lot. Um, I would say if you fall in this bucket, maybe you are prone to take refuge and indulgence. So none of these things are necessarily wrong. I mean, if you lose your job, you need to go out and try and find another one. You need to find the best doctors for your condition, all of that. I'm not saying don't do those things. But if they are the immediate first thing you think about doing, I think that tells us something about where our priorities are and where we tend to take refuge in. What should be our first reaction is to turn to God, to run to Him, to pray, read our Bibles, to know Him and trust Him. That's what it means to take refuge. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on Him for He cares for you. So yeah, you, you, you go talk to other people. You, you have to do what you got to do to manage through situations, but we always got to run to God first and take refuge in Him. We have to go to Him first and go to Him continually. So how do we take refuge in God? I think there's two ways here, and, and I think there's a lot more than two ways, but we don't have time to talk about all those ways, and I think the, uh, the author in Psalms here focuses on two ways, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The first way we take refuge in God is to remember His covenant. In verse 1, we see the psalmist invokes God's covenant name. He says, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. You see that where he says, O Lord, you see Lord in all small caps, Anytime you see that in the Bible, small capital letters for Lord, it's uh, the English translation for Yahweh, God's covenant name whereby he revealed himself to his people. So the psalmist invokes God's covenant name, and then a couple of verses later he says, you have given the command to save me. Certainly would make a lot of sense if it were uh, David writing this. Um, he's referencing God's covenant to protect him, to keep him safe. The psalmist understands that God is a covenant-keeping God who always does what he says. So how do we take refuge in God? We have to constantly remind ourselves of the covenant that He has made with us. We're in the new covenant. We've just went through the book of Hebrews, spent a lot of time talking about covenant. And that covenant for us is through His Son. If we have faith in Him, we turn from our wickedness, we will find our ultimate peace and deliverance in Him. We have something to look forward to because of the work of Jesus Christ. In John 6, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. So that's God's covenant to us. It's something that we have to look forward to, that no matter what hardships come our way, we know what the end result is going to be. We have something to look forward to when Jesus Christ will come back and make things all perfect. I think John Piper puts it in a a really good way when he said, all our afflictions are momentary and light and the weight of eternity. Now, I don't mean to make light of our hardships. I know that just simply sitting here and saying, hey, God's a covenant-keeping God, and he's going to make everything better one day. I recognize that doesn't make the pain of the here and now go away. We still go through hardships. Those things hurt. What I am saying is that it is a very important first step. Um, it takes our eyes off the here and now. We're, very, we're human beings. We're, we're prone to be selfish and look inwardly and in how things affect us. But when we remember who God is as a covenant-keeping God and his promises and where all that's leading, that helps us take our eyes off ourselves, and put our eyes on the things that matter and on eternity. And that will help us through the hardships. The second way that we see that we should take refuge in God here in this psalm is that we should place our hope and trust in Him. Look at verse 5. The psalmist says, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, for my youth. So it's no accident that this comes, this idea of hope and trust comes in the context of remembering the covenant. First, we have to remember who God is, and then, because of who He is, we placed our hope and trust in Him, right? Because He has proven Himself to be faithful time and time and time again. Not only do we have the entire testimony of Scripture that bears that out, if you think through the Old Testament, His people continually went away from Him and rebelled, yet He was continually faithful to keep that covenant. Uh, He continually restored them to the land, protected them, eventually sent the Messiah Um, So not only do we have the testimony of Scripture that bears that out, but we have our lives as evidence of His continual faithfulness. The psalmist references that here in Psalm 71 when he talks about seeing God's work from youth to His old age. God has proven Himself over and over and over, and just because things are tough right now doesn't mean that we should stop placing our trust in Him. The psalmist refers to God in in verse 3. He says, you are my rock and my fortress. This idea of a rock and a fortress, God is unmovable. That's something you can put your hope and trust in. If we think about a rock, you know, this building is built on a foundation, right? It's built on a rock. It's essentially what a foundation is. It's not built on dirt. If we just built it on dirt and one of these crazy Nashville windstorms came through, the walls would crumble and the roof would come in, right? But we're not built on just dirt. We're built on a foundation, on a rock. And so now we have confidence that when one of these crazy Nashville windstorms comes through, that the building structure is going to hold. It's going to be sound because it's based on a rock. And that's our God. He's a rock. He's a fortress. He's unmovable. We can place our hope and trust in Him. You know, I know it's an easy thing for me to get up here and say, hey, when the hardships come, take refuge in God. It's, It's really easy to say that. Reality can be much more difficult than that when things like cancer or death or car accidents or whatever hit us reality is much more difficult how many of us have as our first reaction to go to god in prayer to read his word to simply meditate on his goodness think about those questions that we asked a a few minutes ago instead how many of us our first reaction is to trying to solve the problems on our own i'll admit i'm prone to self-sufficiency I think it's what we're taught in Western culture, right? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Be dependable. Be a hard worker. 
Um, in fact, I'm willing to bet if we went through and everybody talked about the areas in which they tend to take refuge other than God, I'm willing to bet self-sufficiency would be the number one alternative refuge. Um, so what does this passage have to say to this attitude? I think it addresses it directly, fortunately. Uh, and, and look at verse 7. The psalmist says, I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. So what is important? That is not a word we use much in the English language anymore, and I'll have to admit I had to look it up in the old dictionary myself. Um, important is a wonder or a miraculous sign, a great example. And so, in other words, the psalmist is saying many people have trusted in him as a refuge. Certainly, this would make a lot of sense if, if this were David again. In this respect, he's a lot like modern Westerners. The psalmist is strong, capable, dependable. People look to him as important. People look to him to take refuge in. And what does the psalmist have to say about that? He says, I've been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. The psalmist has the appropriate outlook. He has the appropriate context. Even though people are looking to him, he's saying, I look to God for refuge. And so this is one area that we need to emulate the psalmist, especially those of us that are prone to self-sufficiency. We need to stop relying on ourselves and turn to God for refuge. Maybe you're sitting here today and you don't struggle with self-reliance. Not all of us do. We all have things we tend to run to for safety, comfort, protection. We've talked about them. For some people, it's self. For other people, it's other people, right? A spouse, family, other relationships. For some people, it's leisure. For some people, it's politics. I don't know why it would be politics. I turn on the TV and it looks like the opposite of a refuge to me. But for some people, that, that's your cup of tea. For some people, it's possessions. For some people, it's money. Whatever it is that you are personally prone to run to for comfort and safety, the lesson and the application here is the same, that we need to take refuge in God. I strongly believe that one of the most important things we need to do is to, uh, to learn to stop relying on ourselves, on other people, other things, whatever those things are, and instead turn to God for refuge. So let's all take our refuge in Him. That brings us to point number two today. When hardships come, worship God. When hardships come, worship God. <clears throat> and for me, this is really the crescendo of the psalm. This is the emotional through line that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon. This is where the rubber meets the road. When hardships come, worship God. And I understand that for those of you that may be in the, really, in the middle of really, really difficult times, the idea of just saying, hey, when hardships come, worship God, that can sound like an empty spiritual platitude. I understand it sounds like that. How's that going to put food on the table? How's that going to get me a job? How's that going to repair my marriage? If you're in that camp, please bear with me this morning. Please don't tune me out for the next few minutes, because I really, really do believe that the single most important thing you can do when hardships come is to worship God. It's not to try and fix the problem on your own, not to go to counseling, not to read a self-help book, let me stop and clarify that a minute because I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those things or those things are bad. That would be incredibly unhelpful and unbiblical, I think. Those things can be helpful. They can be good. They're gifts from God. If you need counseling, you should go to counseling. If you need medication to help you manage through whatever situation you're in and there's a medication that works for that, then take that as a gift from God and use that. There are good books out there that you can read to help you through things. I think this is the best book, so please don't forget this one. But there are other good books that you should read. I'm not saying that these other things are bad or you shouldn't do them. You should. 
What I am saying is that if we separate them apart from God and taking refuge in Him and worshiping Him, that those things are ultimately meaningless and fruitless. So the primary thing we have to do is to worship God, to go to Him. These other things are good and helpful, um, but we've got to keep the appropriate focus on God. We should worship Him always, but especially in hardships. I think Job is a really good example of this. I won't get into his story because I think everybody's familiar with it, um, but you know, Job was a, a well-to-do man, and God chose to allow him to experience a series of tragedies that his, he lost everything, his family, his possessions, his health, basically everything but his life. And in the middle of that, his friends or whoever come to him and are trying to draw him away and discourage him. In chapter 13, verse 15, Job says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job had the appropriate focus. He knew that even in those hard times, he had to worship God. That's the starting point. So why is it not an empty platitude to suggest that in hardships, we have got to go to God and worship? So because we were created to be little worshipers. That's why God created us, to be little worshipers, to worship Him. And when we are not worshiping Him, we are not fulfilling our purpose. I think the Westminster Catechism summarize biblical teaching in a very, very helpful way when it says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If we aren't worshiping God, then all these other things we do to manage through hardships are ultimately meaningless. We've always got to go back to God. But don't take it from me. Take it from the psalmist here. Verse 14 is really the pivot point of the psalm where he goes into this idea of worship. Now back up to verse 12 for a little bit of context. The psalmist says, O oh God, be not far from me. O oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace, may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. <clears throat> And he goes on and on. You heard Brandy read it earlier. But do you see what the psalmist is doing right here? He's going through this very difficult time. And then, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he just springs into full-on worship mode right here. Springs into full-on worship mode. And I think he gives us some examples of how we should worship God in hardships. And so that's the last thing we're going to talk about today. I think the psalmist gives us five different ways that we need to worship God in the middle of hardships. So number one... We should praise him for who he is and what he has done. Look at verses 14 and 15. The psalmist says, But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. When we're in the middle of hardships, we should worship God by praising him for who he is and what he has done. So who is he? He's the sovereign creator of all. He's the Lord over all creation. He's perfect He's holy, he's righteous, he cannot abide sin. He is love. That's who he is. And what has he done? Well, because of who he is, the things we just talked about, in the person of his son, he took on flesh, he took on the weakness and frailty of humanity, came and lived a life, a perfect life, a sinless life, was persecuted, tortured, murdered for our sins, rose again, ascended to the hand of the Father. And if we have faith in him and turn from our sinful ways, we can have salvation in Him. So that's what He's done for us. We've got to make a habit of doing this at all times, remembering who He is and what He's done. 
If we're not making a habit of worshiping God in this way when things are easy, then we're certainly not going to do it when the hardships come, right? It's not going to be a habit that we have. So let's do it now when things are, if things are good in your life right now. If you're not experiencing hardship, make a habit of doing this. It'll make it all the more easy when hardships come to go to Him and worship. Praise Him for who He is and what He's done. The second thing we see here is that we must remember His goodness. Look at verse 16. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. It talks about reminding others of his righteousness. To remind others, we must remind ourselves. We must remember his goodness. There's all kinds of different ways that we can remind ourselves of the good works of the Lord. Some people use prayer journaling or other types of journaling. That's a great thing. I've never personally been good at that. should probably try to be better. Um, there's other tools available to you to try and help remember the good things God's done in your life and in the lives of others. Technology can be useful for this, right? You can create calendar reminders. Uh, Dare I say even social media could be helpful. It's not all bad. Um, Constant reading of the Bible and prayer, I think, put us in a, a place and an attitude and a spirit of remembering these things. Remembrance was a really big deal in the Old Testament. If we think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and then on throughout the history of the, the people of Israel, when God would do something miraculous or uh, encounter the people in a very special way, oftentimes they would build an altar or, or just a pile of rocks, right, as a uh, monument to remember what God had done. I think they understood that as weak, frail humans, we are prone to forget the good things that God's done in our lives. Uh, there's good works He does that it's very hard for us to forget if we're in the midst of some huge tragedy or very dangerous life-threatening circumstance and God delivers us or somebody that we love, we tend to remember those things. They get seared into our memory because of the way our brains work. But then there are these other ways that God is continually faithful to us on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. And more from our perspective, mundane ways. I don't think that anything God does is mundane, but I think we tend to forget those. So I think this psalm would tell us, remember the good things he's done in, us, in our lives and worship him for that. The third thing we see here is the psalmist tells us to tell others of his goodness. Look at verse 18. He says, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. I think there's a broad application here for telling anybody else about the good works of God. Specifically, the psalmist is talking about telling the next generation. So look around, Redeemer. That should be really, really easy to do in this church. I would dare say that of all the applications you'll hear for all the sermons in the year 2020, this one might be the easiest. You can't walk 10 feet without tripping over five kids in this church because God's blessed us with so many of them. It's a great thing. It should be easy for us to tell the next generation of the good things he's done in our life. As a dual benefit, we are more prone to worship when we're telling other people about the good things God has done. In fact, that's an act of worship in itself, doing that. And then we're also creating little worshipers. And as they grow up, hopefully they will create little worshipers. That's why I'm glad we have our children in church with us. I think it's good for them to see us worshiping together. Read the Bible with your kids. Pray with them. Remind them of the good things that God's done. Don't neglect to mention the things that God's done in your life before they were even born or they were too young to remember. As we continually tell our kids those things that God's done, we're telling the next generation we're worshiping God. And I think if we all do that, we'll build an atmosphere of worship in our church and in our families, our homes.
The fourth thing we see here, the fourth way we should worship God in hardship, verses 22 and 23, we should sing of his goodness. I'll read verse 22. I will also praise you with the heart for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. Now, I'm personally not much of a music person, but there is a reason why we sing in church. There's a reason why pretty much any church you go to across the globe, singing is part of the worship. It's because God created music as a unique form of art, a unique form of expression. Music moves human beings emotionally in a way that very few, if any other things, do. Um, and I would say that the ultimate use of music is to worship and to glorify God. Music has a special ability to create an atmosphere of worship and to perpetuate worship. And by the way, we don't only have to do it on Sunday mornings. So let's sing praises to God continually for the good things he's done. The last one right here, the fifth way that the psalmist tells us to worship God is to continually worship. Verse 24, And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. He talks about talking all the day long, continually worship. I'm glad this is last because I think it's the one we need to hear the most. Uh, it's the one that's most personally convicting to me. I'm afraid that we've taken the idea of worship and we've turned it into something that, hey, that's that thing we do for one to three hours on a Sunday morning once a week. God forgive us for that attitude towards worship. In fact, I don't think that's real worship at all. If we're treating worship like that, if you know anything about pagan religions and how uh, in ancient times they offered their worship to their idols and their gods, when we treat worship like it's this thing we do once a week for a couple of hours, we're actually approaching worship from a very pagan perspective where they would offer something to their gods. Okay, here, I've given you what you want. Now give me what I want. We shouldn't have that attitude towards worship. It's not something to be placed in a box one day a week. If we do that, we're robbing God of, of what belongs to him. Our lives should be continually characterized by worship. We're all busy people, but there's no excuse, right? We make time for the things that we want to make time for. Just think about this. There are a lot of really easy, practical ways that we can make sure that we are continually engaging in worship in our lives. I just think about myself personally. I'm in the car every day, Monday through Friday anyway, uh, about an hour and a half, sometimes more than that. And I know many of you are in the same boat as me with that, with that commute down to Nashville. Even if you're not in the car for that long, 15 minutes is enough, right? The commute can be a good way to pray, to sing, to engage with God in worship. You can use your lunch break. We should use our prayer time. How many of us treat prayer as something that we just pray when we need something from God instead of following the model of our Lord's prayer where we start off by worshiping God praising his name. How would our lives change if the people of Redeemer continually worshiped? What, how would God use that? What would it look like? In closing, as we think about worshiping the God of refuge, I want to leave you with one last exhortation. It's just something simple, a starting point. For the next week, every single day, just set aside five or ten minutes. That's not much. We should do more. Start out with five or ten minutes every single day to just worship. It could be in the car ride. It could be before bed. It could be in the shower. It could be at family prayer time, right? That would be a good time because you're getting your kids involved as well. But engage, intentionally engage in worship. It'll build a habit, and you'll see worship pervading more and more of your life. God desires to be worshiped. It is our purpose, and we owe him that. Let's pray.
oh God, you are a great and holy God. You are mighty. You are good for who you are. You are good for the good things you've done for us. You've given us your son, even though we didn't deserve it. Even though we would spit in your face, you sent him to die for our sins. And we thank you and we praise you for that. God, we want to be a people who worship you. We want to people, be a people whose lives are characterized by worship. And, and too many times we get distracted with other things. And frankly, we worship ourselves. I pray that you would break us of that and you would make us people who worship you. I pray that our lost friends and family would see that we have lives characterized by worship and you would use that to draw them to you. Lord, we need your help to do this. We can't do it on our own. We need the power of your spirit. We need the grace of your son. We need your love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.